just want to read the 8th Psalm, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory upon the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou established strength because of thine adversaries that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him but little lower than God, and crownest him with glory and honor. Thou makest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And then in the Gospel according to Luke, and chapter 22, <clears throat> from verse 28 to 30, Luke 22, from verse 28 to 30, But ye are they that have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom, even as my Father appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and ye shall sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The New English Bible rendering, not that I normally like the New English Bible very much, but the New English Bible rendering of this verse uh, 29 of Luke 22 is quite striking. I vest in you the kingship which my father vested in me. I think that's a most striking translation. I vest in you the kingship which my father vested in me. Now, how to entitle this series, I don't know. Whether we could say, foreordained to rule, called to the throne, called to reign. I don't know what title to give these studies. But what I want to do by the grace of God, by the enabling of the Holy Spirit, is to look at this whole subject of our eternal vocation. Not that we might become more vague and abstract and lost in another world, but that we might somehow or other see the very real relationship that it has to our life down here our relationship to the Lord Jesus, firstly, our relationship to one another in Christ, our relationship 
in homes and families, our relationship in business and work, and our relationship to the world. There is no subject that I think has more um, real and concrete effect upon our life than this matter of eternal vocation. Jesus said to these men who had lived with him for three years and knew him closely and intimately, all of whom were to fall away, all of whom were to deny him, some more terribly than the others, all of whom were to come through shaved of their self-manufactured Christianity, their self-produced service to a new place in Christ. And he said to them, I vest in you the kingship which my father vested in me. It is very interesting in that Psalm 8 that to the superficial reader it must seem almost a jumble of ideas beginning with how excellent is the name of the Lord in all the earth who set his glory upon the heavens and then says out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou established strength because of thine adversaries that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. It must seem a very strange sort of uh, connection between the Lord's name being excellent in all the earth and then babes and sucklings um, uh, somehow or other being used to, uh, to still the enemy and the avenger. But that's exactly what this psalm is all about. It is about reigning. And the most comforting thing about this psalm is not that God speaks to the mighty and the strong or the great or the knowledgeable, but he speaks of babes and sucklings that the Spirit of God can take hold of and do such a work in our lives that the enemy and the avenger is stilled. I think that's a wonderful thing. And then it goes on, of course, the rest of the psalm about how the Lord's purpose for man is to have dominion. And that's what I want to talk about this evening. The purpose of God for man. It's a very good thing for us as believers to ask ourselves what was God's real purpose for man in the beginning? Why did he create man? Why was man made in a way, created in a way that no, none of the rest of the natural creation was created? What was God's purpose in creating man in his image and after his likeness? Well, we have it very simply that he should have dominion. Old-fashioned word. That he should have dominion. That in union with God, he should rule the whole universe. He should govern the universe. He should reign over the earth and the heavens. He should administer the government of God. He should administer the will of God. That he should control um, the earth. 
he should control the world, that he should guard it, that he should keep it, that he should supervise it. It doesn't matter how you look at it, you can bring all these words, rule, reign, govern, administer, control, guard, keep, supervise. They're all little facets of one single matter that God had in his mind in the very beginning when he created man in his image and after his likeness. It wasn't that man should just be some little creature that stood in awe of him all his days, or that he should in some way be someone who was instructed, and never being instructed, never come to a place of supervision where he could supervise or administer. God's purpose in man from the very beginning was, and this is very important, that in union with himself, he should come to the place where he could rule and reign, where he could administer the government of God. Such dominion, as the scripture speaks of it, such dominion um, is not just a matter of mere title or position or status. Some people seem to think um, as we do so often in this world, that if a person's got a position, they are naturally qualified. We find out in our bureaucracy today that many people who have positions are not really capable of the position they hold. They have a title, but they're really incapable of exercising the, the authority that goes with the title. They're unable to discharge the responsibility that goes with their status or with their position. Now, somehow or other, we seem to think that God is capable of creating automatons, automatic machines. Somehow or other, he can just sort of say, now look here, you're a king. And because he says you're a king, you are a king. But this isn't so. For we, the one thing the Bible reveals from Genesis to Revelation is that kingship is not a matter of title or status or position. We have enough in the Word of God to find men who've had, who, who had the status and the title and the position and the pedigree who are anything but royal in character. What we find is that even when the Lord Jesus comes with a pedigree that is absolutely genuine and above question, when we find uh, the Lord Jesus comes with a title which is divinely given, when we find the Lord Jesus coming with a status that none of us can have, yet still the Lord Jesus is made perfect through sufferings and learned obedience by the things which he suffered. In other words, he came to a place of completeness. Uh, he was trained even as the Son, the Son of Man. He was trained to a place where he could shoulder responsibility. And we see in the Lord Jesus, if we have an evening available for it, we'll look at it, where the Lord Jesus displays and exhibits a kind of royalty this world knows nothing about. When he's stripped of every single thing that goes with the mystique of royalty, when he's stripped naked, beaten black and blue, is beard pulled out, bloodied and bruised, lacerated, still he reveals an inner kingliness. He reveals an inner royalty of character. That kind of person can do no other than reign. You can strip them of everything, but in the end they have to reign. They can do no other. 
And that's really what we're trying to get at. That this question of dominion is not just a matter of um, God giving you a title. Even if God wanted to give you a title and wanted to give you a position, you, you have also got to come to the place where you are capable of exercising the authority that goes with the position, where you are capable of discharging the responsibility that goes with that position. In other words, this matter of having dominion, as the scripture speaks of it, uh, is, requires not only union with God, but the development of spiritual character. It needs training. Now, when we turn right to the very beginning, in the very first words recorded that God ever spoke to man, we read this in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now you notice straight away the word dominion. In the authorized version, in the revised version, in the American Standard Version and the Revised Standard Version, you have it translated by this word, and let him have dominion. You will notice in your New American Standard Bible that they have translated it, and let him rule, which is a much simpler way of putting it. Let him rule. And we find this same word, uh, this same Hebrew word, in <clears throat> one or two other places. For instance... Psalm 49 and verse 14. Now those of you who use that version, the Revised Standard Version, um, will find that they have made a correction. I don't know upon what ground they have made the correction, but they obviously don't understand the Hebrew and uh, in the sense that they don't understand the, what seems to them to be a jumble. So... In your Revised Standard Version, every time you see CN, it means they have taken the liberty um, of correcting um, to what they think it probably uh, was meant to be originally. Well, now, the older versions put it like this, and the New American Standard Bible follows. This is what it says. They are appointed as a flock for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall be for Sheol to consume, that there be no habitation for it. And the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. Same word. Shall reign over them, shall rule over them. Or again, you have the same word in Psalm 110, the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 110 and verse 2, the Lord will send forth the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Now the word there, rule, is the same word, have dominion. 
Have dominion. Have dominion over thine enemies. Now it is very interesting that of the second man, the last Adam, it is said, have dominion over thine enemies, in the midst of thine enemies. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. This Hebrew word means simply to have dominion, to rule, or to dominate. And the Oxford Dictionary definition of dominion the word that is, it is most commonly translated by uh, in English is the power and right of governing and controlling. I think that's very interesting. And let them have the power and right of governing and controlling. Another d second definition is sovereign authority, rule or control. Now, isn't that interesting? That right at the very beginning of the human story, in the very first words that God ever uttered to man, that are recorded, he may have said more um, to them, I don't know. But as recorded in the word, the very first words he ever uttered, he said, and have dominion. Rule. Have the right and power to govern and control. It is interesting to note also Genesis 1 and verse 28. Um, Genesis 1 and verse 28 where it says, um, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Will you please notice those two words, replenish and subdue it. I find that a very interesting thing. And it does not say the garden, it says the earth. It says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Subdue the earth. Now, if you compare that with Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, it says, and the Lord God took man, the man, and put him into the garden of Eden, which before we have told how God has planted, to dress it and to keep it. To dress it and to keep it. And again, we have a very interesting thought here because this word keep, to dress or till or cultivate as you have in some of your modern versions, but the word keep is interesting. It comes from the same root as the word to watch, to guard, to keep, to observe, to care. It's very interesting. Now, it seems we have a suggestion that man was told to have dominion over the whole earth. But God, first of all, put him into a garden that was ordered, which he himself had planted, brought order out of chaos and confusion, and into that garden God placed man and said, now cultivate it, till it, dress it, and keep it, guard it, watch it. And then it seems to me quite clear that as man came into a union with God, he was then to move out from that garden and subdue the whole earth. He was to begin with the garden and then go out to the earth. Isn't it an interesting word? Why does he need to subdue the earth? You see, most Christians have got the idea that when God created everything, every single thing was perfect. Well, I have no doubt that in one sense, if you want to say that there wasn't disorder, there's probably uh, a lot of truth there. But life is life. And life has to be trained. 
It's a very, it's, to me, it's so interesting that God said, subdue it. What does it, why does it need to be subdued? People seem to think that without any sin, there was no need for subduing anything. Everything just grew in a perfect place. You went out, and the flowers were there, and uh, not a weed, you know. I mean, uh, thing. it says later on, the curse, how God cursed the ground, said, uh, thorns and thistles shall it bear. Um, the point was that somehow or other, there was a need to have dominion. Even when man had not sinned, before he fell, there was a need in a world in which there was no sin for man to have dominion. And if man didn't have dominion, things would start to get out of hand. He had to cultivate it. There would have to have been a pruning. There would have had to have been a cutting back. There would have had to have been a training. He was there first to learn his first simple lessons in a very happy surroundings of the garden in which God walked every day, and in which there was the tree of life in the center, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil somewhere else in that garden. Well, we, there's so much in this whole thing, but what I'm trying to say is this, that it wasn't as if God just said, have dominion, and man had dominion. The point was that God was training man first in the garden in a certain... In, uh, um, limited area with a boundary, then from that to the whole earth, and then what? Do you think that God's training of man was to end just with a physical subduing of the earth and training and cultivating of the earth and looking after it? Doesn't it seem to you that having taught first the natural, then he would have gone on to the spiritual, and that somehow or other man, in union with God, would have known what it was to control the universe? After all, even fallen man can get a man to the moon and back. It's not as if God uh, didn't put this genius into man. It was all put there by God. It's because we've been made in the likeness of God and after his image that we have this genius, but it's corrupted. It's fallen. Now, I find what, these things very, very interesting. What then? Once he had subdued the earth, replenished the earth and subdued the earth, what then? There must have been some process in the heart and mind of, of God. It is a very interesting thing, by the way, in connection with that little word, dress and keep it, that it is the exact same Hebrew word that you have in Genesis 3 and verse 24. So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the garden of Eden the cherubim and the flame of a sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. That is the exact same word, to observe, to guard, to keep, um, to care, for the way to the tree of life. Now, now, in a moment, we'll come back to this matter. There are many terms by which God takes this matter up in the Bible, this matter of having a dominion, of ruling, or reigning, or administering the government of God, the will of God on the earth. Of course, Jesus put it in a very simple way when he taught us to pray in the pattern prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as it is in heaven, so on earth. Not just some sort, oh Lord, may one day your will come to pass, somehow or other, one day after you've returned, may it come. But we are meant to declare that the will of God in our own circumstances, in the circumstances of the church in which we're found, in the circumstances of the community, even though it's unsaved and lying in the evil one. The will of God in that community should be fulfilled. We are custodians of the will and government of God. 
And we are meant, therefore, as those who have not only been created by God, but redeemed by God, to be the ones who administer the will of God. Now, God speaks in a number of terms. He uses a number of terms in connection with this matter. Let's just look at a few of them. I can only touch on them in the time that we have. We have this matter of the throne. I bring that first, not that there are so many scriptures, but it is interesting. For instance, we read 1 Samuel and um, chapter 2 and verse 8, the song of Hannah, of Samuel, who never became king, but this is what she said. In verse 8, he raiseth up the poor out of the dust, he lifteth up the needy from the dunghill to make them sit with princes and inherit the throne of glory. What a remarkable statement for Hannah to make. He takes, his, she says, he, he raiseth up the poor out of the dust, he lifteth up the needy from the dunghill, that they might inherit the throne of glory. There, by the Spirit of God, Hannah saw something that was the very heart of the purpose of God, to take men and women like you and me, who've fallen so deeply and so terribly into sin and darkness and bondage, and cause us by His grace to inherit the throne of glory. Well, how wonderful then when you listen to the Apostle Peter's words, and the God of all grace who hath called you unto His eternal glory in Christ Jesus after that ye have suffered a little while, himself perfect, establish, strengthen you. The throne, inherit the throne of glory. Psalm 45 and verse 6. You understand this evening we're just taking an overall look at this thing. You don't find it too heavy. Psalm 45 verse 6. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of equity is the scepter of Thy king, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Whatever happens down here in this, on this level, in this dimension, the fact remains that God's throne is forever and ever. Look again in Jeremiah, chapter 17. Dear Jeremiah, in times of great decline and backsliding and judgment, Jeremiah says, verse 17, chapter 17, verse 12, a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. I think that's a most remarkable statement for a man to say who's seen not only had the city of God and the temple of God destroyed, but the people dispersed. I find it a most remarkable statement that in the midst of that, even if, if he said it before it happened, he knew because he had said it again and again that it was going to happen and that the whole people were under the hand of God in judgment and that they were going to be sent away into captivity for 70 years and at least a 50-year exile. And yet he says, a glorious throne, a throne of glory set on high from the beginning is the place of thy sanctuary. If only... If only believers under the new covenant had seen that, that from the very beginning the church is the place for the authority of God. If we had seen that it was the place for the exercise of the authority of the Lord Jesus, the exercise of the authority of God, if we'd only seen that it was the place in which and through which Christ was to rule in the midst of his enemies we would begin to understand this whole matter of being trained how 
to really discharge our responsibility as believers as far as the kingdom of God goes. Now, this matter of God's authority and government, for that's all the throne means, doesn't just mean a beautiful ornate throne with someone sitting on there with all wonderful regalia. God is not the least bit interested in that. I have no doubt that one day we shall see the Lord and we shall see him seated and so on, but he's not interested. That's all secondary. Um, no one will ever warn what the Lord Jesus will wear and they'll never be invested with the regalia he will have. But nevertheless, that's still all very secondary. The thing about the throne of God is that it stands for sovereign authority, for divine government. And what we have to say is this, that it is just that point of divine government and sovereign authority which has been challenged by the powers of darkness. I will be like the Most High, is what Lucifer said, the day star. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I, I, I. It was a challenge to divine government, a challenge to the sovereign authority of God and of his Christ by what the Bible calls the anointed cherub that covereth, whatever that little aside, that little window into the original status and position of Satan was. The fact of the matter is this, dear child of God, this world is in essentially a spiritual world. We think of it as a physical world. We think of us all having a physical life now, and one day we're going to have a kind of spiritual life. But in actual fact, this whole world is essentially a spiritual world. The things which are seen only represent things which are not seen. And all the things which are not seen are in one way or another influencing the things which are visible. And the whole story of mankind, human history, the history of the nations, the history of the Gentiles, the history of Israel, is summed up by this tremendous challenge to divine government and sovereign authority on the part of the devil. And from the very beginning of the record in the Bible, you find the powers of darkness and the power of light in locked in battle. And that's why you find these wonderful words, such as in Psalm 2, which um, I believe we had read to us, if I remember, sometime over the weekend. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens will laugh the Lord will have them in derision. Then will he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Or again in Psalm 110, in that psalm we've already made reference to, we have it once more. The Lord saith unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord will send forth the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people offer themselves willingly in the day of thy power in the beauty of holiness. You see, all this matter of the throne, you'll find it all the way through the Bible. 
from right from the beginning, right the way through, you will find that although it is not revealed in the first uh, books of the Bible, the first few books of the Bible, yet increasingly as you go on into the Bible, you are taken back to the beginning and before times eternal and you see that there was a throne set and that there was upon that throne one whom the Father determined to be the Anointed One, the Christ. And then you find that there is a power of darkness, this being we call Satan, the devil, who challenged that determination of God to give that place to the Son. From then on, we have the whole of human history. And right the way through, it doesn't matter where we turn, right to the very end of the Bible, when we come to the last chapters, we read these wonderful words, and the throne of God and of the Lamb are therein, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall reign forever and ever. That is the last words, more or less, of the Bible. And the throne of God and of the Lamb is therein, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall reign forever and ever. Now, doesn't that give you some understanding of what Jesus meant when he said in Revelation 3 and verse 21, in the last word to the seventh church uh, that he had been speaking to, as representing the whole church in time, in locality, on earth. And this is what he says. He that overcometh, will I, um, to him that overcometh, will I give to sit down with me in my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. To me, there is one whole theme running right through. Now, near to it is another word you will find, the word reign. Now, you'll have to take a concordance and look that one up a little more, but I'll just give you these words that I've already quoted in Revelation 22, 3 to 5. And there shall be no curse anymore, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be therein, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall be night no more, and they need no light of lamp, neither light of sun, for the Lord God shall give them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now look back to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy and chapter 2 and verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12. If we endure we shall also reign with him. If we endure, there is an if. Now please note that carefully, there is an if here. If we endure, or in your old version, it's suffer. It's the same thought. Um, you endure, you don't just suffer, you, you, you endure, you go right through. You don't just sort of sit down and uh, make a meal of it. Um, but whilst you're suffering, you endure because you're coming right through, you're going on, you're going on. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Now look at another word that is also connected with this matter of throne, of the throne and reigning. And it is the word kings, Revelation, and chapter 1, verse 6. He made us to be kings and priests unto uh, his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. 
He made him to be, he made them to be kings and priests. Now, some of you will notice that in your modern version, it says he made them to be a kingdom, priests unto his God and Father. I'll mention that in a moment. Revelation 5, verse 10, the same thought again. Worthy art thou to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Thou wast slain and didst purchase unto God with thy blood men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and madest them to be unto our God a kingdom and priests and they reign upon the earth. Now notice that it doesn't say they shall reign upon the earth. It says they reign upon the earth and they have been made kings and priests. Now, again, your, some of your modern versions um, say have been made a kingdom and priests unto God. The revised version, the revised standard version, and the new American standard Bible all render it kingdom. He has made us a kingdom, priests unto his God and Father. Now, why? Because some of the most authentic manuscripts have got the word kingdom instead of kings in it. But here is a very interesting thing. If you turn back to Exodus 19 and verse 6, we read this. This is what it is based on. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. Now, this word kingdom is one of the most difficult words uh, in Greek to translate um, accurately in English. It's an abstract noun denoting really sovereignty or royal power or dominion. And that's why dear Mr. Sparks always used to render it by kingship. But you can't say he has made us kingship. And yet, you see, it, it's only later came to be a concrete noun, meaning territory and people ruled over. But all of us, as soon as we think of the word kingdom, we don't think of the throne. We think of the people and territory ruled over. You think of the United Kingdom. You think of the territory of the British Isles. And you think of the people, the nation. Um, you think the kingdom of Nepal, you think of the territory of Nepal, and you think of the nation, the people who are ruled over. But in the Greek, it has much more the idea of the, um, the sovereignty, the royal power, the dominion as well, firstly. Now, when you understand that, it makes you realize, you see, we've been called to something. God has made us not only a kingdom, but he has made us a sovereign power. He has made us a royal power. He has given us a dominion. We've got to exercise something. And that's why it says, and they reign upon the earth. Priests don't reign. And a kingdom, in one sense, that doesn't reign. The king reigns. But you see, you've got this, this wonderful crossbreeding of an idea. And so, when you begin to see it like that, it becomes more and more wonderful. For instance, look at Ephesians 2 and verse 6. Ephesians 2 and verse 6. Now, all this is foundational to anything further we shall say in coming weeks. Ephesians 2, verse 6. And raised us up with him and made us to sit together with him in heavenly places. Now, there's a wonderful word given to every single believer. 
We've not only been made alive together with Christ, raised up together with Christ, but we've been made to sit together with Christ. Well, where is Christ sitting? At the right hand of God the Father. And where are you and I? We've been made to sit together with him in heavenly places. I think that's a tremendous thing. Now look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20. And now you begin to understand its bearing upon our life now, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him to sit at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And then he goes on. And you did he make alive and raised up together with him, and made to sit together with him in heavenly places. Now, if we could only see this, what a difference it would make to our church gatherings, to our fellowship, to our relationship to the Lord, to our relationship to one another, how suddenly everything will begin to start to fall into place. That God hasn't just brought us together to be a kind of social club, not even just to help each other, not even only to build one another up. Even our building of one another up has an aim that we might take the position that God wants us to take in the unseen, in the heavenly places, and rule. Church history would have been so different if we'd, been, if we'd seen it in that light. Of course, we've got the same thought again in Daniel, and those wonderful words of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14. Here we are. And there was given him dominion, first word. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. What does it mean? What is the difference between receiving a kingdom and possessing a kingdom? They shall receive a kingdom and they shall possess a kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Daniel wants to make it abundantly clear that this isn't anything transient. It's not just a millennial reign. This is forever and ever. Verse 22. Until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. Well now there is something rather wonderful, isn't it? This whole matter of dominion. You've got it running right the way through scripture. And the matter of kings or kingship or kingdom. You'll find it everywhere. Jesus said, I have appointed unto you a kingdom. And the New English Bible puts it, I have vested in you the kingship which my father vested in me. How beautifully put it. It's just so delicately translated that it just gets at the whole heart of the matter. Then I want you to think for a moment, what does it mean that we are head and body, the church? What does it mean? <laughs> Colossians 1 and verse 18, that in all, the, and here's the head of the body, the church, that in all things he might have the preeminence. What does it mean? 
Again, Ephesians 1 and verse 21 and 22, he has been made head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Surely it means that if we are a body joined to a head, and therefore the living, functioning counterpart of the head, complement of the head, the expression of the head, it must be something to do with the will of the head. There must be something that the head wants to do in Richmond, that the head wants to do in Britain, that the head wants to do in the world. He wants to do things. And if we are joined to him as members of Christ and members one of another, somehow or other it's not good enough for us just to say, oh, isn't it wonderful? We're one with him. We're one with him. I mean, what does the head want to do? How does he want to express his mind? How does he want to express his will? How does he want to fulfill his ministry? The head has a ministry still toward this world to be discharged. We have a responsibility to see that the mind of the head is unknown, obeyed, and the responsibility discharged. Then again we have it in another term, city. In Revelation 21 and verse 2 and 9 and 10. Now we often bandy these terms around, but I wonder whether often we understand the terms that we use. We are so used to it, the city of God. How many times I have said myself here that the end of the Bible, the Bible ends with a city. And how true it is. And yet it seems to me that if we were to say the Bible ends with a city, some, many people, might miss the whole point. They might get hold of the fact that in the end the, the objective of God was a bride for his son, but miss the point that the city which is the bride, the wife of the Lamb, is a city. You don't refer to your wife as a city. <laughs> London has never been called a bride. What, what is the strange cross-pollination of ideas here? What does it mean? The wife of the Lamb, the city. Look at it. Revelation 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Then, even more explicit, verse uh, 9 and 10. And there came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, who were laden with the seven last plagues. And he spake with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Now, what is this matter of a city? A city is essentially a center of government. It is where an administration is centered. Generally speaking, it extends over quite an area, doesn't it? Um, what do you think a city really symbolizes when you think about it? as opposed to a household, to a family, to the temple, all the other terms we have, the body, and so on, it surely must mean it's a center of administration, a center of government. A city would be a hopeless jumble if there was not some kind of administration of government, if there wasn't some kind of order observed. And that really is the heart of this whole matter. One side of the coin is intimacy. Union. 
that God loves us so much that he looks upon us as his bride, as the one he wants to share his life with, that he wants to share himself with, that he wants to be joined to, who wants somehow or other with us to live out the whole of eternity. That's one glorious side of it. Of course, it goes much more than that because we know that Eve was taken out of Adam and formed out of bone and flesh, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And we know that the second man, the last Adam, was put to sleep and his side was pierced. And John makes very much of that side being opened and blood and water coming out. Later on in his letter, he says that there are three that bear witness, the spirit, the blood and the water. He was tremendously struck. It's nothing to do with the finished work of Christ. Because already Jesus had said, finished. So why was John so amazingly arrested by the piercing of his side and the water and the blood that came out? Because it was the second man, the last Adam. And through that blood and water that came out of his side, the church has been formed. It was a most wonderful picture. Um, and, uh, of course, the apostle speaks of it in... Ephesians 5, when he says about marriage being a mystery, he says, this mystery is great, but I speak of Christ and the church. Now, my point is this, that the other side of the coin is that it's not just being a sweet, loving bride who makes a lovely home and a place of rest for her husband and becomes, as it were, a means of his comfort and encouragement and all the rest of it. But it is that there is a place of government. The other side of the coin is that this bride has been trained to reign, trained to rule, trained to administer divine government, trained for all eternity, whatever God is going to do in eternity, and never think for a single moment that this is all that God has ever thought up. Some people seem to think them is amazing. They think this world is literally the sum of God's genius. We know men have been to the moon and they've told us that it's grey like some kind of deserted volcanic uh, wilderness. But you must never think that when God has got rid of all the sin and that whole parenthesis of sin and sorrow and mourning and death has passed away, when he says, old things have passed away, behold, I make all things new, that God's not going to do something new. There won't be new heavens, new earth, new universes, new something. Why? I'm quite sure God will, has got all kinds of things, if I may say it reverently, up his sleeve. All kinds of things. But he will not do it without us. We are to be the people. He, it's as if he says, no, I can't do it. I won't do it. I won't do it. I must have the people who can administer the government. I must have the people who can control. I must have the people who can, can somehow, as it were, supervise. You understand? Could have the dominion. And when you begin to, when suddenly this begins to dawn on you, a thousand and one things fall into place. Well, now, it's interesting when you read what the Hebrew writer says to the letter to the Hebrews. He says in Hebrews 12 and verse 22, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, uh, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem, and so on. And then in the next uh, chapter, 13 and verse 14, he says, For we have not here an abiding city, but we seek after the city which is to come. Now work that one out. In one place he says, you've come. And the other he says, but we haven't come. <laughs> We're seeking for it. 
And that is the whole paradox of this matter of learning how to reign. In one sense, spiritually, we have arrived. And in the other sense, spiritually, we're on a pilgrimage. The one side, we have been given authority in the name of Christ. And it's as if God says, if you don't, I won't. I noted down something that dear Mildred Cable said uh, years ago. Without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. It's so true. It's not as if God can't. Of course he can. He can do without us. My goodness me. The Lord could do without us a lot. We're just a load of trouble. But the point is that God will not. That's the marvelous thing. It's as if he loves us so much. He says, now look, you've got to learn. If you want to have a mess in Richmond, have a mess. Don't expect me all the time to come along carrying you. You've just got to learn to exercise authority in the secret place. You've got to learn to rule things for me. You've got to learn how to take that place in the unseen and determine the very course of your nation. Determine the course, not what you think it ought to be politically or anything else, but what is the will of God for that nation. Why should we just throw in the glove and give everything over to the enemy before it's time? We know there will come a time where the night comes when no man can work. Why should we make the night come before? Why should it come one single minute before it's time? Isn't it enough for the night to come when no man can work? Why should the enemy push it on to us ten years, twenty years before? Good gracious, and he will. The enemy's just like that. He can extend anything like that, he'll do it. And if we as the people of God are not alive and not moving with him and no covering and know how to be together in him, hidden, our life hid with Christ in God, then we are unable to determine things, unable to hold things for God. It is to this that we who have been redeemed by God uh, are called not merely to be a holy temple in the Lord, as it says in Ephesians 2 and verse 22, not even the habitation of God in the Spirit, as it says in the same verse, not even the bride of Christ, marvelous as that is. We are called to the throne to reign with him. And I find then some marvelous things if you take your Bible again. Ephesians and chapter 4 and verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Well-known words. I therefore, the prisoner in the law, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith ye were called. That is marvelous enough to think of it as being called to be the bride of Christ, called to be in union with Christ. But it is even more wonderful to think that we're called to the throne, called to reign with him. I think that's simply incredible. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 12. To the end, that ye should walk worthily of God who calleth you into his own kingdom and glory. That you may walk worthily of God, who calleth you into his own kingdom and glory. Or again, back to Philippians, chapter 3, verse 14. I press on 
toward the goal and to the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This is one of the most remarkable chapters, of course, in the New Testament, because in it, the Apostle Paul says he counts everything but refuse. And he says, I don't even count that I myself have yet laid hold, that I have yet taken hold of that for which God has taken hold of me. But I press on. What does he press on toward? Here it is. I press on toward the goal unto the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Literally on high calling. <laughs> the on high calling. Isn't that amazing? The thought is the throne. It's just that we're called not only to be part of the city, but we have, we're called into divine government. Now, we begin to find some more uncomfortable scriptures. Let's look at them. We will face them. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 5. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 5. Which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God to the end, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Now, how come that it says that you may be counted worthy? Surely it's all of grace. Here you have the other side of the coin. We don't lose our place under, uh, in, the, in the kingdom of God. If we've been born of God, we've been born into the kingdom of heaven. But we can lose our place in divine government. No one's going to ever tell me that Christians who've got, they've got hearts as narrow as a pea and an understanding of the Lord almost as narrow are one day going to sit on golden thrones judging this world. It'll be a total mess. Only if God can do something in us through the things which we suffer, through the training, through the discipline, through our relationship one to another, through the inexplicable things that happen in our circumstances and in our lives, only then can we be brought to the place where we learn the principles of divine government. And then again, look at one, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, an oft-misquoted scripture. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. For thus shall be richly supplied unto you the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now look at that. For thus shall be richly supplied unto you the entrance into the eternal... But we've already entered, haven't we? I mean, if we've been born of God, we're in the kingdom, we don't lose our place. But this is speaking of government. This is speaking on the other side, of the sovereign power, sovereign uh, dominion. This is the, what I've been trying to explain to you, that we should be in the government of God. What a thing it is to be able to die like the Apostle Paul, to have run the race, finished the course, discharged the ministry, and know in your spirit that you can go into the presence of God, a richly supplied entrance into the government of God. Oh, that's something to end. I think I've always, always had such a... Um, uh, I've always found the last words of C.T. Studd so very, very moving when he was dying. And when they asked him if he had anything to say, and he said just these words, which are so simple but so profound, he said, I can only say this that of all God has ever asked me to do, I have done everything. I think that is the most wonderful thing to be able to die 
and to be able to say that all that God has ever asked me to do, I have done. Richly supplied an entrance into the kingdom of God. After all, that's all that God requires of you. The mother of our Lord said to those servants, whatsoever he saith, do it. And in those simple words of hers is the key to the Christian life, key to Christian growth, key to Christian service, key to church life, whatsoever he says, do it. Well, there we are now. I will look at another scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 18. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom. Now, what on earth is he talking about being preserved unto his heavenly kingdom? He's already saved. The Apostle Paul is a most disturbing man, isn't he? Um, what does he mean that he may be saved unto? He's already saved. But he speaks here that he may be delivered from every evil work and preserved unto his heavenly kingdom. I believe he meant this. I don't want to lose my place in the divine government. That's why he said in one place, I don't want to come to the place where I preach to others and I myself am a reject. He didn't mean unsaved. He meant that having preached to others and helped others into the kingdom, into Christ, to salvation, then I find that I myself am a reject as far as divine government goes, as far as inheritance goes. For the same apostle said that we can be saved so as by fire, that we can lose everything. Wood, hay, stubble. All burnt up. Then again, Acts 14, verse 22. Acts 14, verse 22. This is how the apostles spoke to the folks, uh, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. But we've entered into the kingdom of God. We've been born of God. But you see, there's the other side to this coin. And then there's Romans 8 and verse 15 to 17. For ye received not the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but ye received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified with him. Now there's an if. We don't lose our salvation. But it says, if we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified with him. We shall know what it is to enter into the inheritance Otherwise, we don't lose our salvation, but we lose our inheritance. Thus, we find, and I think we shall have to close here, thus we find, really, just these few things in which we can sum up. We have God's original purpose. What is God's original purpose? That man should have dominion with and in and by God. That was God's original purpose for man. Secondly, we have the fall and the enslavement of man. 
For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Fallen short of the glory of God. There is a different kind of man now. We are different. Our constitution has changed from the way we were created. Still, we bear in ourselves constitutionally some marks to being made in the image of God and after his likeness, but a corruption and a perversion and a depraving has taken place. We are enslaved. What do I mean enslaved? We're enslaved to material things. Think of the whole world around us. Enslaved to material things. No understanding of their soul. No understanding of the spirit. No understanding of that invisible world. Enslaved to material things. People will spend their whole life building up their own little empire which of necessity they must leave every stick when they die. Isn't it incredible? And then of course you've got enslavement to the physical. Alone. We've got it all in Scripture, all kinds of things, whether it's just to career or whether it's to sex or whatever else it is. We find an enslavement. We have it in Genesis 3. In itself, there's nothing wrong, but something's come in. Basically, man's constitution has changed from being a God-centered, or what he was meant to be, a God-centered being, to a self-centered being. And with that self-centeredness has come self-consciousness and self-sufficiency. Of course, it's stupid. We were never made to be self-sufficient. So all these people who go around saying, I, I'm independent, I'm going to be independent, you see, they grit their teeth and it's a kind of obstinacy, you see. Um, it, we were never meant to be. It's not that we were meant to be dependent on one another. What we were meant to be, we, meant, we were meant to come into union with God and find our sufficiency in God. Then we become a true human being. Only then. We're not real human beings till we've found our union with God. Do you understand? It speaks of people who are like brute beasts in Scripture. Until they have come to God and come into a union with God, and then for the first time we begin to discover the meaning of life and the meaning of our own constitution, and the meaning of salvation, and so on, and, and so on. And we're enslaved to spiritual powers, too. When you think of it, the people who are atheists are the most enslaved to spiritual powers that blind them, and delude them, and deceive them. You find other people, sometimes in things like spiritism, and other cults, where somehow or other they're blinded, and possessed, and enslaved, and fettered, won't come near the gospel, unable to make a move toward the Lord Jesus. Well, there's all that. And then we find Christ, the answer, God's answer. That second man, as we said, the last Adam. You find that phrase, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45 and 47. And then we find some wonderful things about him. He's a man in union with the Father. He does everything from the Father in him. He says, I do not speak of myself. I speak as the Father speaks in me. He doesn't work. He only works the works that he sees his Father doing. And he says, what is the will of my Father? That I do. Everything is from the Father in him. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't do it from himself. He does it from the Father in him. Even as the Son. He still does everything from the Father in him. He is teaching us a great lesson. To him that overcometh, 
Well, I grant to sit down with me in my throne even as I overcame the Father in him. And then the, another thing about him is he learned through the things he suffered. We find that in Hebrews 5, verse 8 and 9. Um, he was perfected through obedience, not meaning that he, there was anything wrong with him, but he was came to full maturity through the things, by learning obedience through the things he suffered. He learned a discipline. He learned a training. And through that learning of obedience, he learned full, to come to full stature. Now, dear child of God, if the Lord Jesus needed that, how much more you and me? If before he could come to the throne, he had to learn obedience through the things which he suffered, and being perfected, was able to go to the cross for us, and then beyond the cross to the throne. How much more you and me. We need training. We need the Spirit of God. To al we need to allow the Spirit of God to discipline us. Allow the Spirit of God to um, bring us to the place where we learn obedience through the things which we suffer. We don't like that. <laughs> That's something none of us like. Oh my, we'd prefer to grow like a little potted plant without anyone pinching any shoots out or cutting anything back or training us in any way. We just want to ramble where we want. We say, oh, we're alive. That's the thing that matters, to be alive. And the more alive you are, the better it is. You know, you'll have a shoot go out that way and a shoot go out that way and a shoot go up that way and a shoot down that way. You don't want to be messed about. Go to some group where you're happy, where you can grow. <laughs> Always do. Don't want anyone sitting on this shoot and sitting on that shoot and sort of cutting back this and pinching out that and saying, now you've got to go this way. I mean, you don't want that kind of thing. But that's what God has to do with us. And the more we sort of say, no, 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 I'm going to be on my own, I'm going to, I know what the Lord wants for me, the less we learn. And the more we disqualify ourselves from divine government. Because it is just in these little things that we learn the great lessons of divine government. So it was um, that our Lord, we see him as the last Adam, the second man, reigning. It doesn't matter where we turn, we find him reigning. When they have no food, he's in command of the situation. When Lazarus has died, even when he weeps, he's in command of the situation. When there's a storm and they all panic, he's in command of the situation. He's in command, he's reigning all the time. Even when it says his soul was troubled. Even when it says he became indignant. Even when he made a whip of cord um, and drove them out of the temple, turned over, he was always in command. He was reigning, he learned reign inwardly he was denied an outward throne denied any greater claim finally they stripped him of everything and when they had stripped him of everything he reigned supreme that's why some some of the old church fathers always said that uh, one of the psalms i think it's psalm 98 uh, was originally he reigneth on the tree. Well, we don't know whether that really is true. They say it was, and it was the last words were uh, cut out um, because people didn't like the idea that it referred to the Messiah being crucified. But the fact of the, uh, of the matter is that it's the truth. He reigned from the tree. And so that comes to this last thing, that by becoming a sacrifice for us, he brings many sons to glory. 
And in Christ, God's original purpose for us is realized. That's why we have that wonderful word in Ephesians 3 and verse 11. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, that's my version, realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, that's the new version, uh, showed forth in Christ Jesus our Lord, that's another version. What does it mean? It just means simply this, that in Christ, God has already won. He has realized his eternal purpose in him. And we, saved by Christ, in union with God, in him, anointed, in him, made one body in him, are being trained for the throne. If we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. Therefore, the purpose of God is not only to save us, not only to bring us to our own experience of his life, of his power, of his fullness, not only to build us together in himself, but to train us to have dominion and to train us to have dominion in the humblest of circumstances. Not to all of us is it given to have the afflictions of traveling all over the world. Nor is it given to us to have the afflictions of just having a platform ministry. Most of us have the afflictions of a kitchen sink or some dreadfully dull office where everyone appears to be mundane and dreary. But it is just there that we don't always recognize the hand of God in training us. For it is just in the situations that develop where it doesn't seem to matter, and where somehow or other at times it doesn't seem as if anyone would bother anyway, that this whole matter of being trained to have dominion is so important, it it is the sphere of it. The last word of the Bible is not even the bride of the city, but they shall reign forever and ever. Therefore, let me say this, we must take note of the ifs. There are enough ifs in these scriptures to give us sober thoughts. It's solemnizing. If we endure with him, we shall reign with him. If we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified with him. Many contend, only one wins the race. To him that overcomes, will I grant to sit down with me in my throne. We therefore see three things in the Bible. Christ, the church, and the overcomer. And when the majority of the saved do not go on, do not possess the will of God, do not fulfill the ministry God has given them, you find the Lord takes up a few, sometimes one, sometimes a remnant, who possess for the rest. It matters not what you call them. You can call them the overcomer, the remnant, or what else. They are an advanced party. That I think is the loveliest way of describing them. They are an advanced working party. They go ahead to get the whole thing done for the rest. And they don't think, oh, we are something. 
We've gone on ahead of that lot. <laughs> Blind, deluded, lethargic, worldly lot, all there. We are, of course, an overcoming community. <laughs> Longing to us, you are, of course, part of necessity, an overcomer. Because it really costs. Yeah, we get the best. <laughs> we know the Lord ought to really with us. Is that kind of elitism? And that is what has been associated with the overcomer teaching and has destroyed it. It was certainly not Mrs. Penn Lewis's idea, nor D.M. Panton's idea, nor was it Austin Sparks' idea or Watchman Nee's idea, all of whom believed in this matter. But it's because it produced in some people a kind of superiority that we are the overcomers, we are sort of the, we're going to reign. Uh, by the grace of God, of course, but we're going to reign because we're ready to suffer. We're ready. But there's none of that at all. That's a sure sign you're no overcomer. That is the very spirit that has wrecked everything all the way through. The fact of the matter is these people are harbingers. I only found out today that a harbinger is literally someone who went ahead to find lodgings. Did you know that? Oh, well, that was a new one on me. A harbinger is someone who goes ahead to find out lodging. You see, it's a forerunner. Think of them as forerunners. Think of them as pioneers. Think of them as those who are harbingers. They're an advanced working party. They go on, not that they may be something, and when the rest comes, they'll say, well, you made it. <laughs> but they are there to welcome the rest. They're, where, they're there because they've laid down their lives for the rest in order that the rest may come in. Now that transforms for me the whole matter of overcoming or the remnant, however you look at it, it transforms it. Because what it means is it is conformity to the Son. He laid down his life for others. And everyone who is a true overcomer has laid down his or her life without thought for the Lord, and for the rest. Not just for the elite, but for the whole family. When we see that, I think it cuts out all the big ideas that sometimes go along with this matter. We want to be surely like that, and that's what I would like to do by the grace of God in our next times, to start tracing a few of those who God took out as forerunners. Some of them single people, or sometimes a little group like Abraham and Sarah and so on, a little group. They were forerunners. Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob, they were forerunners. And Joseph was another wonderful forerunner. All of them would... Why, do you know what God said of Abraham? The most wonderful thing, the uh, most moving thing that I think God has ever said to a man, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. If that is overcoming, I want to be an overcomer. If it means that through my life, through my way with God, through allowing God to do in me a work, all the families of the earth are blessed. 
I think that's right. That then give us a life of a hundred years without any seed. Give us a life of trial and tribulation if it means that in the end all the families of the earth are blessed. And that's what God does with the overcomer. He puts them into trials that no one else has. He allows them to go into situations that no one else faces. Challenges come to them that no one else faces. Why? Because they are being trained in divine government learning deeply the, the principles of divine government. Where are you in this matter? It matters not where you turn in the whole Bible, you'll find it all the way through, that when the majority fail, God takes up one, or two, or a few, or a remnant, and then he puts those people through it in such a way, and in the end they come out, and the rest come into the blessing. Why, when the few went back from Babylon to the promised land, they were a small, despised, uh, derided people. But in the end, when the temple was built, and Jerusalem was built, and Bethlehem was rebuilt, and the cities of Galilee were rebuilt, the scriptures could be fulfilled, and the whole nation came into the blessing of the remnant. So it will be in the end when God can get a people who are prepared to move with him and allow him to do something in themselves, that in the end the whole blessing for the whole church can finally be given because God has got in some that maturity, that capacity, that being brought to the place of a divine government. No wonder the Apostle Paul says, the whole creation groaneth and traveleth together in pain until now, waiting for the liberty of the glory of the sons of God. When God can get that, then the end will come. Let's praise the Lord and just commit ourselves to him. Dear Lord, this has been a long time, and thou knowest a lot has been said. But we pray, Lord, that although we cannot retain all in our heads, thou wilt grant, Lord, that in our spirits much, much more will be preserved than we can, than can be preserved in our memories at the present time. And, O oh, Father, we pray that thou wilt translate this matter of having dominion into practical terms for every one of us. Thou knowest, Lord, where we're defeated and where we're under. Thou hast said that we're to be the head, not the tail. But, Lord, so often, instead of being above, we're underneath. Oh, Father, when we should be the most free people, we are the most enslaved people. Father, have mercy upon us and by thy Holy Spirit work in all our hearts and work in us as a company of thy children so that, Lord, something may be done to thy praise and thy glory. We ask it all in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.